but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The earth. Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series, Witnesses, a study on the book of Acts. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Father, this morning we want to meet with you. We want to hear from you. We need to be comforted by you, God. We need to be encouraged by you. We need to be challenged by you and changed by you. God, we acknowledge that we are dust. We are here today and gone tomorrow. We are like a vapor. But you are the everlasting God, and our hope is in you. And so we're, we're coming to you, God, as your people, and we are asking that you would come to us. We are asking that you would make yourself known to us this morning. Father, you know how weak and pathetic and frail and lazy I am. You know how undeserving I am to even address your people from your word. And so I ask God that you would supernaturally work through your spirit. I pray for a demonstration of your spirit and power as the word is preached, where you would interact with your people and I would disappear. I need help there, God. Um, And I thank you, Lord. I'm actually encouraged by you because you care about your glory more than I do. You care about your people more than I do. You love to build up your church. You love to bring honor to your name. And so, God, I'm begging that you do that this morning, um, that we would be encouraged in your presence. This is my prayer, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Start praying. I'm like facing that way by the end of the prayer. (laughs) It's weird. Um, You guys can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, that's where we're going to be this morning. Our last sermon in the book of Acts until after Christmas. We're going to do a little Advent series, which will be pretty awesome. So that's coming. If you're visiting this morning, uh, we're glad you're here, especially if you're in town for Thanksgiving. I hope you're encouraged by our time. Um, This Thanksgiving, Victoria, my wife, and our girls went up to Raleigh, where my family is. I got um, three siblings. Older brother, younger brother, younger sister. And my older brother, when he was uh, in his middle school years, was not the happiest teenager. Uh, In fact, his favorite activity was to provoke all the younger siblings. Well, we had this, uh, this babysitter named Tommy. And Tommy was this college dude. He was so cool. We hung on every single word that he said. I remember in third grade one time, he told me to ride home from school in his trunk, and I did it. So that gives you an idea of this guy. Well, fifth grade, if you guys will remember from my last sermon, I was a late bloomer, okay? And so that's funny. Uh, Fifth grade, uh, I was about 4'5", 90 pounds, soaking wet. My older brother, eighth grade, was about 5'8", 160 And we were on the way to get a Coke after school, 
and he was, he was giving me a pretty hard time. And so Tommy says, William, let me, let me talk to you, man. When, when we get out of the car at the Circle K, I want you to fight him. And I was like, all right. You know? So I get out of the car at the Circle K, and I mean, just looking back, this is the most hopeless situation ever, right? My back is totally against the wall. Not a good showdown for me. But me and my older brother were going to showdown in the parking lot of the Circle K. And this is basically what we're going to see today in Acts 12. I will tell you how that ends, but you're going to have to hang on. Um, in Acts chapter 12, we have a showdown with an obvious favorite versus a, a major underdog. A, a king with unlimited resources versus a fisherman with nothing to his name. If there was ever a situation that seemed hopeless, this was it. Now, let me say up front, I love Acts chapter 12 because it doesn't really fit in Luke's flow of thought. So let, let me explain what I mean. In chapter 1, verse 8, Luke gives his thesis for this book. And, and Jesus says, hey, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and that's exactly what we've seen as we've gone through the book of Acts. Right? The Spirit comes, there are witnesses in Jerusalem, then persecution comes and they scatter to Jerusalem and, or to Judea and to Samaria. And then by the end of chapter 11, we see that the story has moved to Antioch. And that will be the kind of home base for the rest of the book. But for some reason in chapter 12, Luke takes us back to Jerusalem. And he takes us back to Peter. And so this week I'm asking him, why, why does he do that? And, and here's what I think God is wanting to show us. He wants to show that he is not just sovereign on a macro level. right? He is not just orchestrating the major events of world history. He is also involved in the details of our lives. God included chapter 12 to show us that we can trust him even when situations seem hopeless. So that's where we're going this morning. We're answering this question, what are we to do when we as Christians face situations that seem hopeless. Acts chapter 12. Here we go. As always, friends, an honor to sit under the word of God. The grace of God to us. We will get through the whole text, but uh, chunks at a time. So one through five to start. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So we're talking roughly 10 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And like Bill has explained to us the last couple of weeks, the gospel has spread to non-Jews, which was a huge deal. And now Luke sets the stage for this showdown between King Herod and Peter. So let me give you a quick introduction on these two guys. In the one corner. That's kind of funny. <laughs> I'm 0 for 2. It will continue, so bear with me. 
In one corner, we've got Herod Agrippa. And Herod comes from a family of politicians. Think the Kennedys or the Bushes or something like that. Okay? And his granddaddy tried to kill Jesus. And then his uncle had John the Baptist beheaded and played a major part in the death of Jesus. And now he is participating in the family business. And basically what we've got in Herod is this power-hungry maniac who is craving the approval of the people around him. So in an effort to kind of boost his ratings in the Gallup polls, he starts persecuting the church. And he even goes so far as to kill James, who's the first, first apostle martyr, James the brother of John. And because the people in Jerusalem responded so positively to this, he says, I'm going for Peter. I'm going to take down Peter, and then I'm going to be the man. So we got Herod over here, and then over here in this corner, we've got Peter, the fisherman-turned-apostle who's got nothing to his name. And Peter is chained to two guards in maximum security prison with two guards guarding the door with fresh rotation day and night. Uh, And all he's got with him in his corner is this little group of social misfits the church, and they're in hiding, and they're praying. Doesn't take the guys at ESPN to let us know that this is not an even matchup, right? Herod versus Peter. It's like me versus my older brother on paper. It is uh, not looking good for our man Peter. His situation seems hopeless. Well, let's, let's keep going and see what happens. Verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. So, middle of the night before Peter is about to lose his head. And he's sleeping. He's sleeping. Don't miss this. I can think back to my college basketball days. And preseason conditioning. And every 15 minutes before 5 a.m. rolled around, I kept looking at the clock. When we have something that we dread, it's difficult to sleep. But Peter is fast asleep. This is the night before he is the top story in the New York Times. How could he be sleeping? I think Peter could sleep because he knew that he was right in the middle of God's will. And it's here that we draw out our first point. When we face situations in life that seem hopeless, the first thing we need to do is trust that God is sovereign. We need to trust in God's sovereignty. Now, let me get some definitions out there because here's, here's something that happens for us. As Christians, um, we say things a lot without really thinking about what we're saying. So words mean something. Let, let's think about what this means to trust in God's sovereignty. First, let's deal with trust. When we talk about trust, we're talking about putting confidence in the strength or the ability or the reliability of someone or something. Confidence that leads to action. So let me illustrate this way. In the 1860s, there was this guy named Charles Blondin, and he was a world-famous tightrope walker. And here's what he would do. He would string a tightrope across Niagara Falls, 160 feet up in the air, and he'd walk across it for a quarter of a mile. And he'd do this with a blindfold. He'd do this with his manager on his back. He'd do this with a, on one occasion he did it with a wheelbarrow. And when he does it with a wheelbarrow, he comes across to the crowd on the other side. Thousands of people, they're screaming, they're cheering. And he says, do you believe I can do it with somebody in the wheelbarrow? 
And they said, yeah, we believe. And he says, who wants to get in? (laughs) Nobody volunteers. Trust in the scriptural sense means getting in the wheelbarrow. Peter could sleep because he genuinely trusted that God was in control of and directing his circumstances, even when they seemed hopeless. Right? This is what it means when we say that God is sovereign. He is on his throne, friends, and nothing is outside of his control, and he is working every situation in our lives for his specific purposes, which will always result in his glory and for our, our long-term good if we're Christians. And the Bible makes this reality abundantly clear, that God is in com- complete control of all things. I could show it to you a lot of places, but I want to stick with Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says this. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter's point here is that even our suffering is according to God's will. Now, I'm going to tread very, very lightly here because I know there are some difficult situations going on in this room. And I know that our first reaction to this truth can be very, very negative. We, we feel like gold, or God is, is cold or heartless. But friend, I would actually say that the opposite is true. That the fact that God is in control should comfort us in the middle of our suffering. Here's what I mean. I'm going to quote a guy who wrote a, a commentary on the book of Job. He says it this way. It's not suffering that destroys a person, but suffering without a purpose. I've told you guys before that in 2010, I was diagnosed with a neurological disease, and for about a one-month period, it looked like it might be ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, I'd just gotten married. And if at that point I was not a Christian who believed in the sovereign will of God, that would have completely paralyzed me. But what happened was, by God's grace, I was able to start to look at that from a different angle and see the good God who gave his son for me is in control of this. And even though I can't see how he is going to use this, he promises to work this for my good, either that I might know him more or that I might be conformed further into the image of Christ or that I might be a witness to him in the middle of it all. And guys, I get that it is way easier to talk about this looking back when things are pretty good now. And I also get that some of you guys are in the middle of a hopeless situation right now. And so I want to be very, very careful. Um, For you, it could be a marriage that's fallen apart. Maybe you've tried to have a baby over and over and over again with no success. We, We know that for some of you guys, this is the hardest time of year. Because the last thing that you need is a a reminder of loneliness or that chair that used to be filled, but now it's empty. Or or maybe it's something not that serious. Maybe you didn't get into the school that you wanted to get into. Or maybe you're just the mom whose kids are sick and you're worn down. But whatever it is, my encouragement to you this morning is to get in the wheelbarrow of God's sovereignty. Fight to believe 
the truth that God will work this for your good. He will cause you to know him more. He will make you more like his son. And he might just be using you in a supernatural way in the middle of it all. And I would turn our attention to the cross. Because, friend, there has never been a situation in the history of the world that seemed more hopeless than Jesus of Nazareth on the cross. He is the Son of God. He is the one who came to save us. And he was betrayed by his friends. He was captured and beaten and killed. The Messiah was dead. But there was not a moment that our sovereign God was not in control. In fact, Acts chapter 4 says that it is exactly what his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. And so whatever hopeless situation you're in this morning, look back to the cross, see God's good character, and remember that if he could work that for our good, for the saving of the world, he can work what you're going through for your good, no matter how impossible it seems. You can get in the wheelbarrow of God's sovereignty. That's the first point. First thing Peter did when his back was against the wall. Verse 7. Let's see, this, see the next thing. Back in the story. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did, not know what was be- he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Okay, this is an awesome scene. So Peter is in this jail cell, chained up. He's far away dreaming. And this angel comes in and gives him a punch in the ribs to w- wake him up. Okay, gives a whole new meaning to touch by an angel. Nice reception. Ethan didn't think I was going to get any laps for that joke. So that's good. One nothing, Ethan. Um, And then this angel starts acting like a paranoid parent, right? Get up, get your shoes on, okay, get dressed, get your cloak on. It's cold outside. Cloak, it's funny. Okay, no. Um, and, And Peter obeys. Right? And, and then things get totally supernatural. Chains fall off his hands. The, the cells of the prison open up. They, they walk past these guards who are either sleeping or they're supernaturally blinded to what's going on. And then they get to the city gate that's bound shut and it opens like you're leaving Dutch Island. Right? God had Shawshanked Peter again. And then in verse 11, we see the main point of the whole passage. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When Peter's back was against the wall, when the showdown that he was in seemed completely hopeless, God worked with supernatural power on his behalf. And it's here that we find our second point. When we face situations that appear to be hopeless, when we are in showdowns, In the Circle K parking lot, we need to trust God's power. We need to trust in God's power. Here's what we mean when we say God's powerful. We mean that the Almighty God can do whatever He wants. Nothing is too hard for Him. He can do 
whatever he wants. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says that God has eternal power. Luke, in his gospel, in the first chapter, says that nothing will be impossible with God. And you guys, I got to experience this the other day in a way that honestly frightened me um, in a good way. I was in Panera, and um, next to me was a lady doing her BSF homework. Next to her was this sweet Presbyterian couple that I've become friends with. Around the corner was Miss Joyce, who works there, a dear Christian lady. And we're all sitting there reading our Bible. And 10 feet away, kind of right up here on the front row, this, uh, this lady starts screaming. And her husband, who was about my age, had gone completely limp, not breathing at all. And so the woman had a little infant, and so she takes it and hands it to the lady who's doing her BSF work. I run over, help get this man down on the ground, and so he's laying on his back, and, and I fall to my knees, and I put my hands on this man's leg, and I just start crying out to God, God, save this man. In the name of Jesus, God, save this man. And that goes on for about 15 seconds, and then all of a sudden, the guy starts shaking, and then he starts coughing, and then he comes back too. And I'm sitting there with my hands on this guy's leg, trembling like this, saying, praise God, praise God. And the restaurant had crowded around, and they're looking at me like I'm the biggest freak on planet Earth, <laughs> right? And, but then all the Christians start hugging and high-fiving, and <laughs> we think God has just worked miraculously, you know? But here's the point. God still loves to show his power in seemingly hopeless situations. He loves to. And we've got to make sure we don't limit our Christianity to doctrines and propositions and truth. Yes, Christianity is truth. Yes, it is the lens through which we see the whole world. But we cannot forget that our God is real. He is alive. He is active. He works. And so I, I don't know what you're going through this morning, but I know that our God has the power to restore relationships. I know that he has the power to help you fight that sin that you want to give into. I know that he has the power to destroy addictions. I know that he has the power to provide in ways that we cannot understand. Our God can do whatever he wants. And, and friend, again, I would turn our attention to the cross because there has never been a more hopeless situation for us than the situation of our sin. We, we have never been more powerless than under our sin before God. But if you are a Christian, if your hope is in Jesus in life and in death for your right standing before God, you have experienced God's power in a miraculous way. And that experience is the basis that he might work on your behalf going forward. Let me explain, or I'll let Charles Spurgeon explain in a way way better than I could. I should just read Spurgeon's sermon, probably. <laughs> Here's what Spurgeon says. It is but a small thing for me, your God, to help you. Consider what I've done already. What? Not help you? Why, I bought you with my blood. What? Not help you? I have died for you, and if I have done the greater, will I not do the less? Help you? 
It is the least thing I will ever do for you. I have done more and will do more. Before the world began, I chose you. I made the covenant for you. I laid aside my glory and became a man for you. I gave up my life for you. And if I did all this, I will surely help you now. In helping you, I'm giving you what I have already bought for you. If you had need of a thousand times as much help, I would give it to you. You require little compared with what I'm ready to give. It is much for you to need, but it is nothing for me to bestow. Friends, God loves to display his power in our seemingly hopeless situations. The cross proves it. Whether it's to supernaturally deliver us like he did with Peter or to sustain us in the midst of it, he loves to display his power. Let's keep going. Verse 12. When Peter realized this, that he was out, that he was delivered, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Okay, so Peter makes a beeline for Mary's house. Mary's John Mark's mama. John Mark, we'll see a lot of him later. He wrote the, uh, the gospel of Mark. He'll be a, a significant character in the book of Acts. Quick side note encouragement. Mary had a pad big enough to house many people who were gathered. And so if God has blessed you financially, man, be encouraged by this woman to use your personal wealth for the good of God's kingdom. She's a great model for us. Peter knew they'd be there. They go, or he goes, and then he starts knocking. And don't miss the humor in this passage, okay? Peter's escaped. He's trying to be kind of discreet. I mean, the authorities could be hot on his heels any minute. And, um, and this servant comes to the door because everybody else is probably scared to if we're being real. In verse 14, look what happens. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. Now, I, I don't know about first century protocol for servants, but I was thinking, man, if the leader of the church that you're praying for came, let him in, might be a good idea. But she doesn't. She goes and she tells him, hey, Peter's outside. And they think that she was uh, overserved at the communion table earlier that night, if you know what I mean. But she keeps insisting, and Peter keeps knocking, verse 16. And when they opened it, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James, it's the brother of Jesus, and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So he's brief. He tells him what happened. He recounts God's miraculous events. And he says, hey, go tell these other leaders. I'm headed for the Mexican border because the authorities are after me. And he takes off. We don't know where he went. And, and there's no doubt the church that night celebrated late, late into the night. But here's, here's what I want us to focus in on. When the church faced a hopeless situation, when they seemed completely unmatched, they prayed. Look at verse 5 and verse 12. Verse 5 says, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Again in verse 12, many were gathered together and were praying. This is our next takeaway. When our backs are against the wall and when our situations seem hopeless, we need to trust that God answers. We need to trust that God answers. Guys, the primary way that we lay hold of God's power is through prayer. The primary way 
that we lay hold of God's power is through prayer. There is a connection. God has made there to be a connection between our asking of him and our receiving from him. His teaching in the, Jesus' teaching on the Gospels is super clear about this. James, who's just mentioned, makes this clear in chapter 4 of his book. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. The way that we lay hold of God's power is by praying. And, and I want to highlight a, a couple things about how these guys prayed when they were facing hopeless seeming situations. First, they prayed corporately. These guys prayed together. Verse 12, many were gathered together and were praying. For some reason, God loves it when his people pray together. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly why. I mean, God says that he loves unity. Perhaps it brings him, brings him more glory when many of us pray and then we see him work. But God loves to answer when we pray together. And lots more could be said about this. But I want to give a, an encouragement and a challenge to dads, husbands. Because most of us stink at this, y'all. I mean, we'll, we'll pray at dinner time. But when our wives or when our kids face situations that are difficult, one of the best ways we can lead our family is by saying, let's go to the one who can do something about it. We model godliness for our kids, for our wives, when we do that. And God loves to answer when families pray together. And so an encouragement, guys, if we have LeBron James on our team, we're going to pass him the ball. We're dumb if we don't. If we have access to Almighty God, we need to go to him, especially with our families. So first, these guys pray corporately. Second, they pray earnestly. They pray earnestly. Verse 5. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. When we say earnestness, we just mean intense conviction. Intense conviction. Let me tell you about the six words that transformed my prayer life forever. However many years ago, I read this book called How to Pray by R.A. Torrey. I don't remember anything from the book except for these six words, and they're the simplest six words in the book. But he says this, when you pray, pray to God. When you pray, pray to God. Here's what I mean. When we face hopeless situations in life, don't just talk out loud. Don't just let your thoughts be vocalized. Don't just sort of talk with God's name at the front of it because you feel some secondhand guilt to do this because people say to do this. No. Be real. Be raw. Communicate with the almighty God, the living God who acts. Talk to him. Lay hold of him. When you pray, pray to God. God loves to answer prayers that are prayed to him. He loves to. And then last, one encouragement and something that encouraged me so much this week. Even though these guys were praying together, and even though they were praying earnestly, when Peter showed up, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. They thought, no, 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 no. This is, this is impossible. He is in maximum security prison. This, this makes no sense. They didn't think God could do it. And let me tell you why that's so encouraging to me. Because I have multiple situations right now where I think, I don't know. I, I don't know if God can actually do this. It seems too difficult. 
But this has encouraged me because the same God that we pray to is this God. It's the God of Acts chapter 12. He loves to amaze his people. And so we need to trust that he answers when we call on him. Okay, meanwhile, back at the jail, verse 18, there is a panic. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. No little disturbance is Luke's way of saying that stuff hit the fan. Um, These guys are panicking because under Roman law, if a prisoner escapes, the soldier gets the sentence that the prisoner was headed for. These guys knew that. That's exactly what happens. Verse 19, after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So he had the guards on Peter's detail killed, and then he heads back to his headquarters in Caesarea, no doubt totally ashamed and embarrassed because he had lost and the underdog had gone free. And then when we get to verse 20, you guys, Luke fast-forwards us 11 months. And again, we have this section that really doesn't fit in the book of Acts other than to show that God wins. When you show down with God, God wins. That's why this is in here. Luke wanted to show that God's on Peter's side, and where God is, God wins. And so here's God's knockout blow on Herod, verses 20 through 23. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So we don't know why Herod was angry with these people up north. They're probably Phillies fans. Um... I owe you worse than that from last week. Um, But these guys depended on Galilee for for their food supply. And so they had to make right with Herod. So they do a little bribery, and they make buds with a higher up, and then they get an audience with Herod. And so Herod dresses in this silver robe, and he goes and he speaks to them. And when he speaks to them, the sun is shining off of him. And so these people start to worship him. And, and unlike Peter did, remember he's, Luke's contrasting these two, unlike Peter did in chapter 10, people worshiped him and said, hey, I'm a man, get up. Herod enjoys it. And then unlike Peter, who was struck by an angel in an effort to save him, Herod is struck by an angel to his death. And Luke's message is obvious. When it comes down to Herod and his unlimited resources versus Peter, the fisherman, and nothing to his name, There is one clear champion. Uh, And so here's our final point. As we consider what to do when we face hopeless situations, we trust in God's justice. We trust in God's justice. Okay, I told you I'll tell you what happened with my brother. This is the justice point. So we get out at the Circle K, and all four foot five of me chests up to my brother. Right? Right? And I said, dude, I'm not going to take this anymore. <laughs> Fifth grade. And in one punch, <laughs> the fight was over. He knocked the mess out of me, man. <laughs> I was done in one punch. At this point, the illustration completely falls flat. 
nothing. But here's what doesn't fall flat. When we talk about God's justice, there is no failure. Our God always does what is right. He always judges righteously. He is completely fair in everything he does. This is incredibly reassuring, guys, because some of the hopeless situations in this room, you're victims. You're like Peter was. And so whether it's persecution or abuse or disease or betrayal or abandonment, the reality that one day God will judge the world with equity, the reality that one day he will have his retribution, the reality that one day he will set everything right, that is a good, good thing to hold on to. But God's justice isn't always comforting. In fact, if we actually take time to think about God's justice, it can be pretty scary. Because if we're thinking about justice, then pretty, pretty soon we have to ask the question, well, have, have I met his standard? Am I good enough to stand before God? And the biblical answer is not even close. We have a much better chance of walking across a tightrope over Niagara Falls where we might fall to our death. God's justice says that's what we deserve. And the difference between the Christian and non-Christian is really, really about this. Right? In ourselves, we're both guilty before God. But the non-Christian, even though you might be a better husband, you might be a better dad, you might be a better employee, you might be a better citizen than anybody in this room, if you're trusting in yourself, you'll have the same end as Herod. You will come under God's judgment. You see, the Christian understands that he could never meet God's standard. We could, in our own strength, never be good enough. We would never measure up. But what we've done is we've trusted in the justice of another. Let me explain. Jesus of Nazareth, the only innocent man ever. And he was condemned to death. Why? Well, because he was meeting God's justice for me and for you. The perfect son of God hung there on a Roman cross, enduring the full judgment of God, the full wrath of God towards sin in one single concentrated dose. Jesus was meeting God's justice so we don't have to. You see, all we've done is we've gotten in the wheelbarrow of God's justice. And at the same place, friend, can't you see his love for you? Do you see how much almighty God loves you there? That he would endure that for you so that you might be forgiven, so that you might have hope. The Christian doesn't have to fear God's justice. Because of what Jesus has done, we can celebrate it.
I think God included Acts 12 in the Bible to show us that we can trust him, even when our situations seem hopeless. We can get in the wheelbarrow. That's what we've seen these Christians do these first 12 chapters. And look at the result, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. As these guys trusted in God's sovereignty and in his power and in his justice and that he answers, God's work couldn't be stopped, even when there was great opposition. Friend, our God has not changed. He can still be trusted. This chapter is in the Bible to prove it. Let's pray. God, we stand not on our own merit, but we stand in the work of what Jesus has done for us. Our hope is in you. Our trust is in you. Um, We thank you that you have solved our greatest problem of sin. Uh, But Lord, I come to you now on behalf of the people in this room that I love so much, and I ask that you would work with supernatural power in their situations. I ask that you would do what only you can do, that you would heal what only you can heal, that you would mend what only you can mend, that you you would restore what only you can restore. God, would you do this for your own glory and for the good of your people? God, I'm asking that you do this because of what your son has done. Pray in his name. Amen.